a man called together his doctor, his lawyer, and his preacher. And he said, I know my time is coming soon. And they say that you can't take it with you when you die, but I'm going to. And he gave each of them an envelope. And he said, in each one of those envelopes is $25,000 cash. And this is what I want you to do. When I die, I want each of you to put that in my casket. So the man died. The doctor, the lawyer, the preacher, they all came to the funeral. And they very secretly stashed an envelope inside the casket. Well, the three of them happened to be together a few months later, and the preacher was just overcome with guilt. And he said, I have to tell you two something that I've done. I, I couldn't put all of that money in the casket. I couldn't just waste it like that. Our church was in a building program, and we needed the money. I only put $10,000 in the casket. And the doctor said, oh, I'm so glad you started. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because this has really been weighing on me. Uh, we had, were doing some medical research and we needed funding for it. And, and I only put $8,000 in the casket. And the lawyer shook his head. And he said, gentlemen, I am ashamed. And I want you to know that my envelope that I put in that casket had my personal check for $25,000. So maybe, maybe the preacher knew a little something about confession. And maybe he was trying to lead his friends in a good direction. Preachers talk to us a lot about changing our life. And our Creator wants more for us than to simply have good habits. At the very, at His very heart, God wants to forgive us. That's the core of the redemptive process. God wants to forgive us. That is why Jesus went to a cross to die on a hill called Golgotha to forgive our sins. The Apostle Paul explained that in this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us. He took on our sin. And it was in that sacrifice on the cross that for that confession has meaning. Without the cross, there would be no forgiveness. Without the cross, confession of our sin would only be psychological therapy. But it is much, much more than that. So I want to share with you a little bit this morning about what confession means. The Greek word that is often translated in the New Testament as confession is homologeo. The Greeks did this really fun thing. They would take a word and they'd stick something on the front of it and then they'd stick something on the back of it and they'd make a whole new word out of it. And sometimes they'd take two words and squeeze them together and make a new word with a different meaning. And that's what happened with this word homologeo. Homo means the same. In the store we all buy homogenized milk. Do you know what the homogenizing does? It makes the milk all the same. The cream doesn't separate out. It's all the same. Logos is the Greek word for word. Put same and word together 
and you get more than same word. According to Thayer's lexicon of the Greek New Testament, you get say the same thing as another or agree with. It means to profess, to declare openly, to speak out freely. And it's used in that manner in Romans chapter 10. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. What we have here in Romans chapter 10 is a confession of faith. Take note of what it is that we're saying when we make a confession of faith. We are saying Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, then that means that I must submit to him. Now, this makes sense to me. If I'm proud, I say I did it my way. If I am submissive, then I say I did it God's way. Submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ will lead me to confess. To confess that He is Lord, He is in charge, and I am not. A further meaning for the word translated confession is to admit or declare oneself guilty of what one is accused. Another way to say that might be, when I do it my way, and not God's way, I admit my guilt. I submit to God's standard of what is right and what is wrong, and I agree with God about what he says. This is confession of sin. The Apostle John teaches us how this speaking in agreement with God relates to our, to our salvation. At 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we read this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What the Apostle John is writing about here is us making our confession to God. Now, having the linguistic background here helps a little bit. If you just have the English translation, you get the idea. But you little, miss a little bit of the nuance. Confession means to speak the same. So when it comes to our sin, we seek the same with God. We go to the Father in heaven and we agree with Him. He is right. I am wrong. And we agree about that. God knows it. I know it. And we agree on it. We speak with the same voice about my behavior. We speak with the same voice about my choice of words. We speak with the same voice about my selfishness. And that is a very long way from the excuse making and the rationalizing and the justifying and the blaming of someone else when we do wrong. Preacher and author John Ortberg tells a wonderful story about confession. And I want to read to you what he's written. Some years ago, we traded in my old Volkswagen Super Beetle for a new sofa. A mauve sofa. It was roughly the color of Pepto-Bismol. 
But since we'd made such a big investment in it, we thought that mauve sounded better. The man at the furniture store warned us not to get it when he found out we have small children. He said, you don't want the mauve sofa. You want something the color of dirt. But we had our naive optimism as young parents. We told him we know how to handle our children. Give us the mauve sofa. From that moment on, we all clearly knew the rule of the house. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't play around the mauve sofa. Don't eat on it. Don't breathe on it. Don't look at it. And this really gets me out like this. Don't think about the mauve sofa. Remember the freedom for the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden? On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But upon this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For in the day you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. (laughs) Then came the fall. One day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain. A red jelly stain. So my wife, who had chosen the mauve sofa and adored it, gathered our family together, lined up the three children in front of the sofa. Laura, age four, and Mallory, two and a half. Little Johnny, six months old. Do you see that, children? That's a stain. A red stain. A red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store says, it's not coming out. It's not coming out forever. Children, do you know how long forever is? That's how long you will stand here until somebody tells me how the red stain got on the sofa. Mallory was the first to break. With a trembling voice and tears in her eyes, she said, Laura did it. Laura passionately denied it. Then there was silence for the longest time. Not one, no one said a word. I knew the children wouldn't, for they had never seen their mother so upset. I knew the children wouldn't, because they knew that if they did, they would spend eternity in the timeout chair. I knew they wouldn't, because I was the one who put the red jelly stain on the sofa. And I knew I wasn't going to say anything. (laughs) What's the truth in all of this? The truth is we've all stained the sofa. Confession is simply agreeing with God. That I'm the one who made the stain. Admitting that we have stained the sofa is essential. However, God knows about us. He made us. And he knows that confessing to him in private, only to him, simply is not enough for us. We must be accountable to one another for our actions. And so God tells us we need to confess to others. 
James teaches us about that at chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Richard Foster has written, Human beings are such that life together always involves them in hurting one another in some way. Confession is essential because in community... In a community of hurt and hurtful people, we must speak with one voice. When I hurt you, I must agree that my actions, my words were painful. We must speak with the same voice. We must confess first to our Father in heaven and then to one another. Any parent can make a list for you of why it's important To make a confession about the stain on the sofa. So let's make a few, a list of a few benefits of confessing to God and to others. The first benefit of confession is that in this agreeing, there is reconciliation with God. Think back to 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. What happens when we agree with God? What happens when we tell God, this is what I did? What, he, what does he do when we speak with that same word? When we confess our sins, he purifies us from all unrighteousness. Now, what is it that keeps us from God? What is it that keeps us from enjoying a wonderful fellowship with God? What is it that keeps us from being in some kind of wonderful unity with God? Well, it's our sin. It's our unrighteousness. And we, when we can get that cleared up, we can be reconciled to God. And that's the goal of the gospel. To bring us back to God. The Holy Spirit lays that out for us clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. If we will not agree with God, if we stubbornly hold to our way of thinking, if we refuse to submit, there's no reconciliation. Our reconciliation with God is dependent also on our reconciliation with one another. As long as we refuse to be reconciled to one another, we're going to be estranged from God. Jesus teaches that very, very clearly. What I want to say next, I want to ask you to listen to. Go beyond listening. I want you to hear it. Go beyond hearing and practice it. This is what I'm saying to you. Do what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and then and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come. And offer your gift. Now you may think that having 
a disagreement with somebody in your church family. It's just part of the natural order, order of things. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says it's not good and it's right, not right. That's not the teaching of Jesus. What does Jesus tell you? If somebody has something against you, you go fix it. I want to, I want to use an, an imaginary example here, and I want to pick on Ben. I want to pick on Ben for two reasons. I want to pick on your preacher, number one, because he's not here to defend himself. I want to pick on him for another reason. Sometimes people think that paid staff are different. That if you're a paid staff in a church, then the teachings of the Bible don't apply to you anymore. So let's say that on a Monday morning, Ben posts on his Facebook account that you wore an ugly shirt to church. And he can't believe that anybody who really was a Christian would wear to church a shirt that ugly. You don't care. You like that shirt. Lots of people like that shirt. You, your spouse likes that church, that, that shirt. And the people you work with like that shirt. People in Walmart tell you how much they like that shirt. So whose problem is it? It's Ben's problem. He can get over it. So you're on your way to work. And you listen to the Christian radio station. And that song comes on that you really like. And you're going to get your groove on. Whatever that thing is you do in the car. And you're going to worship. Because this is really meaningful. You're going to send this one right to heaven. And Jesus says, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here. Turn the radio off. Just turn it off. Because it ain't going to work. Somebody's got something against you. And before you come to me for reconciliation, you go to your brother or your sister for reconciliation and you fix that first. Even if he's paid staff. Who does Jesus put the responsibility on? You. Jesus says, you go and fix it. Now, we're going to look at a similar teaching. I'm going to take you to also in the book of Matthew to verse 8, to chapter 18 and to verse 15. Listen to what Jesus says. And what Jesus does here is he puts the shoe on the other foot. He's just going to turn it around. If your brother sins against you, remember before you were sinned against by your brother, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Jesus says, if you're unhappy with somebody else, then you go and you fix it. So now Ben's got the ugly shirt on. 
and you tell the people you work with. My preacher wore a shirt on Sunday that was so ugly. I can't believe any preacher of the gospel would wear a shirt that ugly. And you tell you tell people in your family, you go next door and you tell your neighbor next door, he wore an ugly shirt. You're telling people in Walmart. My preacher wore an ugly shirt. But you're not telling Ben. And Jesus says, that's wrong. When you've got something against your brother, even if he's paid staff, you go to him and you work it out. Jesus leaves no room for the other person to have any responsibility in any of this. Jesus says, you fix it. If you have something against someone else or someone else has something against you, Jesus says, you fix it. So, why am I making up these wild stories about Ben and ugly shirts? And what does all of that have to do with confession? Well, if you're going to do this, if you're going to be faithful to the teaching of Jesus, you're probably going to need to confess. If you were the one that was wrong, you need to confess it. You need to admit it. No blaming, no excuse making, no rationalizing. Confess. Say the same. Then change your behavior. And if you were right, if you were the one who was right in all of this, then confess. Confess your selfishness, your stubbornness, and your refusal to submit to the clear teaching of Scripture and not taking care of this a long time ago. If you won't submit, if you won't confess, then God is very clear there's no forgiveness of sin. If you won't submit and confess to your brother or sister in Christ... Your worship is unacceptable and you're left out in the cold. But when we submit and we confess, there is healing. We don't confess because God needs to hear it. He knows. We're not revealing any new information to him. We confess so that we can be healed. We confess so that we can be changed. If I genuinely confess... If I agree with God, what I did was ugly, nasty, and putrid. If I agree with God, sin is going to look much less attractive to me the next time I encounter it. Now that we know a little bit about what confession is, how crucial it is, let's talk about just a little bit how to do it. Now, I, we've got a very short time. And about confessing to one another, really all I've got time to say to you is choose who you will confess to very wisely. Find someone who demonstrates both spiritual maturity and emotional, uh, emotional maturity. Someone with some common sense and someone with an ability to keep a confidence. So I want to invest a little more time in thinking about how we might confess our sins to God. 
How do we do that? How do we confess our sins to God? I got some help for, for this from a man named, named Richard Foster who wrote a book titled Celebration of Discipline. He says, first of all, examine your conscience. Think back over your day. What you did, who you encountered, what you said, what you thought. Was there a time that your conscience was stirred? Was there a time when you knew, or at least you suspected, that you were involved in something that was unholy? Genuine sorrow will also be a part of our confession of our sin. Not sorrow over the consequences of our sin. Sorrow for the pain we have caused in the heart of God. I think parents can understand this. When a parent sees a child doing something self-destructive, that parent might respond with anger or frustration. But what's underneath that anger and frustration? What's fueling it? Pain. Pain because every parent wants the best for his or her child. And you know the heartache that is just around the corner for this child that you love. God describes himself to us as a parent. He is our father in heaven. When we hurt one another, when we disobey him, we inflict pain in his heart. And I think that any true child of God would feel genuine sorrow for causing that. When we are honest about what our sin is, and when we realize the hurt that it causes the one who loves us so much, we will renew our determination to avoid sin. The notion that we can just go ahead and do whatever we want to do, because later we can confess and make everything okay. That's a gross misunderstanding of grace. The Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 6 verse 2 that we died to sin. We cannot continue in it. We must confess. We must repent. We must change. One further note about confessing our sins. There must be a termination point. In the self-examination process. Otherwise we fall into the, into the pit of permanently, habitually condemning ourselves. Confession begins with sorrow. But it ends with joy. There is a celebration in the forgiveness of sins. Because it results in us genuinely living a changed life. Confession is the natural outgrowth of submission. When we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the natural response is to acknowledge our failings. There's an amazing confidence knowing that the one we submit to, the one we call Lord, is a king who lives, who loves, who loves us beyond all measure. My challenge for you this morning comes in the form of a question. Have you submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Does he rule your life? 
Living under his lordship brings freedom. Kenny was talking to us a little bit about freedom earlier this morning. In our country, we're celebrating this weekend our freedom. In Jesus Christ, we experience an entirely different kind of freedom. Freedom from fear. Freedom from fear of the future. Freedom from failure. Freedom from the fear of the unknown. Living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ brings wonderful joy and peace and fulfillment. So my question to you this morning is, are you living in submission to Jesus Christ? You've got elders that will be here this morning. You've got lots of people in this church that would be willing to talk to you about that. If you want to talk to someone about what it means to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'll close with a prayer. Father in heaven, I'm so very grateful for the opportunity to share from your word. So grateful for the opportunity to gather this morning in freedom. First of all, freedom from fear that the government will interfere with what we're doing. That's a huge and wonderful blessing. But also grateful that we can gather together in joy and in fellowship, in harmony, and in peace. I pray for Prairie View that she will know your peace. I pray for each person here this morning that he or she will know your peace. And I ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.